Hey, good morning. Good morning. If you want to grab a seat, it's good to be with you guys this morning. If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I am one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here this morning. Welcome. If you want to open your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 50. 4 through 11, Isaiah 54 through 11. Again, oh my goodness. It's plugged in. We're good. All right. All right. Well, I don't know if you've heard, but painting, painting with Bob Ross is now on Netflix. Uh, and even if you haven't heard, it seems like most people have had an experience with Mr. Ross. Um, you've probably been flipping through the channels on the old boob tube and, and uh, landed on an episode um, wherein Bob Ross... All right, well, this is embarrassing. Let me grab that handheld. Where is that? Sorry about that. Um, Well, you've probably landed on an episode of Bob Ross, painting with Bob Ross, where he's taken you on an exquisite journey through the process of painting a wintry scene of some sort. And uh, it's this incredible thing when you watch uh, Bob, you know, Ross would would start with a a blank canvas, and then he would apply some some shapes and forms and and lines. Uh, I'm out of my element here, but he starts with an outline of of sorts. Uh, He kind of starts with an outline, and and you can't quite see it, right? You can't quite see what he's doing. You're, You're kind of puzzled. You're kind of perplexed. How can this blank canvas with some lines and some shapes and some shading turn into this this gorgeous landscape. And at times, he'll even apply a color or a shape or or something that you, you just go, okay, Bob, you've, you've ruined it. Uh, it the, the painting is done. It was looking like it had some promise, but uh, it, you've gone too far at this time. It's, it's, this, it's, it's too much. But then he applies some more details, some more color. He fills it out a bit more and, and the end, your, your jaw drops at the end result of this beauty, this, this magnificent painting that, that Bob has uh, formed for us. Because at the end, you're, you're left with this gorgeous scene that makes you wish that you could just jump into this little canvas in his studio and go hiking or, or kayaking or something. And that's kind of like what Isaiah is doing here with these servant songs in Isaiah. We've been walking through these songs. We started in Isaiah 42, and then we saw Isaiah 49 last Sunday. Now this week, we're in Isaiah 50, and next Sunday, we'll finish with looking at Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. And, and the first servant song is, is kind of an, it's kind of a sketch. Kind of an, it's, it's sort of like a, a, a pen and ink sketch. Uh, you, you know, you, 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 
see this, this promised Savior, the servant who's going to come to rescue the broken and the bruised, and, 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 and you're thinking, okay, I get it a little. I, I, I think I see what he's doing, and, 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 and then I'm a little perplexed on, on specifics, but I think we see what's going on here a little bit, and then you, you move on to the next servant song in Isaiah 49, and, and, uh, and things fill out a little bit more. And Isaiah is, is getting a little more specific. We, we see more of the king's character. We see more about his ministry, more about the salvation that he's going to bring. Uh, but then y- 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 you learn that he's going to be despised. And, and, and what, what's the deal with that? And now the third comes, and we're going to see a bit more this morning. And, and next week, we're going to see the, the full portrait of this servant in, in Isaiah 52 and 53. But, but, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Right now, we want to stick here with Isaiah 54 through 11 and get a, a, a further sort of uh, sketch of this servant king whom God will send to save his people. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Isaiah 54 through 11. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have heard, this you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This is the word of the Lord. Holy Father, um, we come to you now as those weary people spoken of here in need of a sustaining word. Would you speak, Lord, for your servants? Listen, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And have a seat. 
Well, as you may well recall, the, the sort of backdrop to these servant songs is one of judgment. In chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah acts as uh, God's prosecutor, making his, his case and pronouncing his judgment upon the nation of Israel for being God's unfaithful servant. And the sentence which, which it's Israel receives is, is exile, being exiled. The judgment which falls on them is being exiled from the land, being exiled from the land of, of milk and honey, being exiled from the place of God's presence and God's abundance, being sent into Babylon, rather, as slaves. It's a dark and, and hard sentence. And in chapter 40, we see a change in, in tone, a, a shift, a pivot comes in, in chapter 40 when God tells Isaiah to comfort, comfort my people. He's told to speak comforting words instead of words of, of judgment. And these words of comfort tell of a future wherein God's people will be brought back into the land and, and of a time wherein God's temple will be rebuilt and they're They will enjoy God's presence and abundance again. And interspersed throughout these comforting words, we find these servant songs. And what these servant songs tell us is that the salvation which God will ultimately bring to his people is is much more than than geographical, much more than a a geographical salvation. The salvation which he will bring is is more than, than political more than a, a political salvation brought, upon, brought about by a political leader. The salvation which God intends to bring is more, far more comprehensive and fuller and deeper than that. The salvation which God intends to bring is as deep as the human heart and as wide as all of creation. And this salvation won't come from a politician or an army or from the sword this salvation will come through a servant. And this is a word that we need to hear this morning. In our time and in our place, you know, we we live in what seems like an endless cycle of we're putting our hopes and dreams and in politicians and and candidates and presidents and governors and senators and mayors and Supreme Court justices. We believe and we're duped again and again that if we can finally get our man or our woman in office, things will really change and our version of the good life will finally be delivered to us. We'll finally arrive. In other words, we'll finally be saved. And perhaps Richard Lovelace put it best when he said this, In the hearts of the people, there is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if only the right ruler would come along, the world would be healed of all its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head. This is what Israel was hoping for. They were hoping for the the, the right ruler, the right leader to come along. They were hoping for the right king, the right politician to come and lead their people into abundance again. And ultimately, what they found again and again and what we find is that when we trust in in politicians and presidents and the like to deliver our hopes and dreams to us, it's just the blind leading the blind. They, like us, are, are wandering through the dark. 
Their lives are a mess, just like ours. Therefore, they cannot truly deliver what we need. For that, we need someone who is perfectly wise. We need someone who is perfectly just, perfectly righteous. For that, we need someone who hasn't made a a mess of their life. For that, we need someone who's not wandering through the darkness trying to figure their life out. We need someone who's figured it out. In other words, we need God's servant. And that is who is presented to us here in Isaiah 54 through 11. Look with me, beginning at verse 4. First, we're presented with the servant's wisdom. In verse 4, the servant says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Behold here, the the servant's wisdom to possess the tongue of those who are taught, of one who is taught literally means to be someone who is learned. And probably a good English word we could use to describe such a person is is to say that he is a sage. Jesus, he's he's one with vast insight and depth of knowledge. He's brilliant, he's knowledgeable, he's wise. It, It may kind of seem funny to say, but But literally, what's going on here is he's saying Jesus is really smart. Jesus is really smart, which may seem obvious, you know, you might think. After all, he is truly God and truly man. He he is God come to us clothed in humanity. Of course he's smart. But not so fast. Being truly God doesn't give Jesus a pass on all that makes us human. True, the, the, the Son of God in His divinity possesses all knowledge. The theological word to describe this is omniscience. He knows every single thing about every single thing. But in His, his divinity, His divinity in His humanity, that we, we shouldn't confuse the two. They, they, they aren't mixed together, okay? They are distinct from one another. Jesus is one person with two natures. This is what theologians call the, the hypostatic union. Jesus is one person with two natures. He's, he's got two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, and these two, oughtn't, we, we shouldn't confuse them. They're not confused. And the fact that Jesus is truly man then means that he has truly taken on the human experience, and part of the human experience is learning and growing in knowledge and understanding. We see Jesus experienced precisely this in Luke 2.52. It says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He had to grow in wisdom. He had to grow in understanding. He had to learn new things like you and I learn new things. And here in Isaiah 50 verse 4, we see how he grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom through a daily appointment with God. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Morning by morning, he met with God the Father. Morning by morning, the word of God was his food and drink. Morning by morning, the servant read and memorized and treasured the word of God in his heart. Like a baby bird receiving its nourishment from its mother, Jesus opened up and received what God the Father had for him and had given him. We also see in verse 4 here that this this servant's wisdom is given to him to a particular end. Why is the servant wise? Why is the servant given such understanding? 
Well, the servant says that such wisdom was given him that he may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. He is wise so that those who are broken, those who are weary, those who are heavy laden with sin and suffering and guilt receive comfort from his teaching. He's wise so that he may be, as Isaiah 9 puts it, the wonderful counselor. That he may be the wonderful counselor to those who, to those who are lost and weary and broken. I love what African Bishop St. Augustine once said about the wisdom of Jesus. Augustine, perhaps one of the greatest philosophers to ever live, once said, I've read in Plato and Cicero many sayings that are wise and beautiful, but I have never read in either of them, Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No one has ever said that except Jesus. Indeed, there have been many wonderful philosophers and professors and sages and theologians and the like all throughout the ages, but there's been no one like the Lord Jesus. There's been no one who knows exactly what to say, exactly when to say it. There's been no one who can comfort as he comforts. There's been no one who can assure as he assures. There's been no one with a yoke as easy and a burden as light as his. Indeed, God's servant is wise, and he is wise for you who are weary. He is wise for the bruised reeds and the faintly burning wicks. He is wise so that the bruised reeds might be mended by his words. He is wise so that the faintly burning wicks would be restored by his word. He's so, so wise that the fearful might find refuge in him so that the guilty would be forgiven in him so that the ashamed would be covered in him. He is wise that he might sustain those who are weary with a word. He is the wonderful counselor. Next, we see the servant's obedience. He's wise because he's a perfect hearer of God's word, but he's not only the perfect hearer of God's word, he's also the perfect doer of God's word. The servant says in verse 5, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. His ear was opened to hear God's word, and he heard God's word, and he did not rebel. He did not disobey. He obeyed God's word perfectly, as Jesus said of himself in John 14, 31, I do as the Father commanded me. He was, he was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly just. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. And the perfect obedience of God's servant is is set up here in contrast with the disobedience of Israel here. In Isaiah 48, 8, the Lord says through his prophet to his people, You have never heard, you have never known, from of old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a a rebel. And the same in 48, 18, Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. God is saying to his people, you have not actually listened to what I've declared to you in my word. You have not paid attention to my commandments. You are stiff 
stiff-necked rebels, each and all of you. We haven't loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. We, those things that we're supposed to do, we don't do them. And then those things that we're not supposed to do, we do those things. So we find still in the next servant song, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have turned to our own way. He alone is the spotless lamb of God. What God's word commands, he does. What God's word forbids, he doesn't do. And it seems that for that, because of his perfection, because of his righteousness, because he is the perfectly just man, humanity hates him. You know, around 400 years before the birth of Christ, the philosopher Plato lived and wrote and taught, and as the aforementioned Augustine quote stated, Plato had many wise and insightful things to say, and perhaps one of the most insightful things he ever wrote was concerning what humanity would ever do if we came across a perfectly just man. What would we do if we ever came across a, a perfectly righteous man? What would, what would we do if we came across a man who's the perfect embodiment of wisdom and virtue and justice? Well, Plato says, the just man will be scourged, tortured, and imprisoned. His eyes will be put out, and after enduring every humiliation, he will be crucified. Perhaps he had read Isaiah. What he's saying is that we just wouldn't be able to stand it. We wouldn't be able to tolerate a man who exposes our darkness and our wicked deeds with his light. We wouldn't be able to tolerate a man who put our shoddy righteousness to, to shame with his spotless righteousness. We as wicked humanity would inevitably beat and torture and brutally murder him. This is precisely what happens to the servant of the Lord. The servant testifies in verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He gave his back to those who strike. Indeed, we, we know that Jesus was condemned in a human court and sentenced to Roman scourging. One commentator describes the, the famous practice of Roman scourging this way. He says, The Roman scourge consisted of a short wooden handle to which several throngs were attached, the ends equipped with pieces of lead or brass and with sharply pointed bits of bone. The stripes were laid especially on the victim's back, bared and bent. The body was at times torn and lacerated to such an extent that deep-seated veins and arteries, sometimes even entrails and inner organs were exposed. Such flogging from which Roman citizens were exempt often resulted in death. This is what Jesus gave his back to. He gave his back to those who striked. He gave his back to the scourged. And he did so for us. Furthermore, he gave his cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. Should, would have been painful to say the least, but, but there's also a symbolic gesture in such an act. This, this would have gone beyond the norms of, of Roman scourging and crucifixion. This, this was a cruelty meant to express a very personal contempt. 
In that time and place, a beard was a symbol of a man's freedom and respectability. And in tearing his beard out of his face, they were saying to Jesus, you are despicable. You are pathetic. You are a condemned criminal. He also didn't hide his face from disgrace and spitting. Of course, we know that as Jesus was being scourged and and crucified, they, they hurled insults at him. They mocked him sarcastically, calling him the king of the Jews. And they blindfolded him and hit him and and told him to prophesy concerning who was hitting him. And they spit in his face. And he was publicly humiliated humiliated by sinful humanity. This is what he endured because he was the one true, just, and righteous man, and because we aren't. And, and, and you can see what's going on here, right? He's the perfect and spotless lamb of God, and we are the sheep who have gone our own way. And so the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That's why this contrast is set up between the people of God and Jesus the servant. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He who did not deserve torture and death took torture and death in our place so that we would be forgiven and cleansed and healed. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8 tells us. And his death on that cross was for you and for me so that we might be reconciled to God and brought out of our darkness. But that's not all. Verses 7 through 9 go on to speak of the servant's vindication. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty, he says. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Again, we're seeing a contrast here between the way the servant is treated by sinful humanity and how he is treated by the one true God. Sinful humanity beats him and pulls out his beard, but the Lord God helps him. Sinful humanity insults him and spits in his face, but the Lord God vindicates him. Sinful humanity crucifies and kills the servant, but the Lord resurrects him three days later. You know, this is a a pattern of proclamation that we actually find in the New Testament as well. The Apostle Peter and his uh, first several sermons recorded in the book of Acts will often contrast the way sinful humanity treats Christ as a criminal and the way that the Lord God vindicates him. He, he, he will say things like in Acts 2.23, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Or like in Acts 3.13, Peter says, The God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one 
and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Sinful humanity crucified the servant, but God raised him up. God vindicated him. And Peter gets that pattern of proclamation here from Isaiah 50. In Isaiah 50, the the same sort of pattern is being presented to us in in forensic terms, in legal terms. You should imagine in this text that we're in a sort of courtroom here. God is seated on the the seat of judgment, pronouncing his verdict. Of course, in in the court of sinful humanity, the servant was disgraced and condemned to crucifixion and death. But in the court of the divine judge and king, the servant is not disgraced. Rather, he is vindicated, he is justified, he is declared righteous. That's what the resurrection is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's announcement and declaration to the world that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. The the resurrection is God's justification, his vindication of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection, God declares, the Lord of the universe declares... To us, Jesus is who he said he is. He is the righteous one. He is the obedient one. He is the embodiment of wisdom and justice. He is my perfect servant. The resurrection is God acting to vindicate his holy servant, Jesus. But that's merely the beginning of his vindication. As as Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says concerning God's servant, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His, His vindication will continue throughout all ages as men and women and children from every nation, tribe, and tongue confess him as Lord. And on the last day when he returns to judge the living and the dead, every knee will bow in his presence. Revelation 1-7 says, even those who pierced him, even those who mocked him, On that day, every single one of us, the entirety of the human race, will kneel before Jesus and he will pronounce his judgment. We will be subject to his judgment and receive his verdict. All those who mocked him at his crucifixion and down throughout the ages will hear him say these words, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who's going to declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. They will face destruction for all of eternity. For all of eternity, though, in contrast, God's servant will be exalted, glorified, vindicated. That's servant song here says so now what do we do in light of this servant song for the reader's benefit there's a sort of tale to this servant song the servant has attached two verses of application at the end of the song verse 10 and 11 he's attached a call 
in verse 10 and a warning in verse 11, a call to trust in him in verse 10, and a warning to those who trust in themselves in verse 11. First, we see the servant's call. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Here's the servant's call. Trust me. For those of you who are weary, trust me. I will be your sustenance. For those of you who feel like you're lost in a cloud of darkness, trust me and I will be your light. For those of you who, who are foolish, trust me and I will be your wisdom. For those of you who are disobedient and guilty, trust me and I will be your righteousness. God's servant has come and he has been perfectly obedient and righteous on your behalf and he has suffered as a condemned criminal on your behalf so that you would be counted perfectly obedient and righteous in him. Moreover, he has been raised and justified by God on your behalf so that you who trust in him would be justified with him. This is precisely why the Apostle Paul takes these very same questions that the servant asks here and he puts them in the mouth of the Christian in Romans 8.31. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen to this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or any of the other darkness that we walk through, any other earthly things that cause you anxiety or distress, any other earthly things that make us feel like we're wandering through a cloud of darkness, struggles with addiction, financial struggles, mental illness, physical illness, loneliness, strained relationships, whatever it is, Will any of these things separate you from the love of God and Christ Jesus? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. No one can condemn us if we are in Christ because he cannot be condemned. He is the vindicated servant of God. So I say to you, as we begin our gathering every Sunday, all who are weary and need rest, all who mourn and long for comfort, all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, all who fail and desire strength, all who sin and need a Savior, the servant of God has come for you. Look to him, receive him, trust him. But for those of you who don't trust him, those of you who trust in yourself, Isaiah also gives us a warning. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have for my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Whether or not you fear the Lord, whether or not you trust his servant determines your eternal destiny. I know this is not a popular thing to say. This is what the servant says, so I say it to you now. This you have 
from my hand, you will lie down in torment. To lie down is a euphemism for death. And to lie down in torment is speaking of a place of eternal suffering, eternal judgment after death. And those who are, who are headed for such torment are those who kindle their own fire and equip themselves with burning torches. These are those who, who when walking in darkness, seek to produce their own light to guide them through life rather than relying on God's servant. They have their own ideas and views to live by. They, have, they find their ideas more plausible than the teaching of the risen Christ. They find their ways easier than the ways of the risen Christ. They're making their own way in life, in other words. As, as Frank Sinatra put it so brazenly, I did it my way. That's what's being talked about here. And please don't assume that just because you're here this morning, that you're not one of those people. Please do not think that just because you're here this morning, that this warning doesn't apply to you. Please don't confuse being religious and respectable with trusting God's servant. You may be here this morning as someone who is respectable and religious and the whole Jesus thing is just a means to that end. It's just a means to the end of making your parents happy. It's just a means to the end of making your spouse happy. It's just a means to the end of raising your children with good morality. It's just a means to the end that you look like a decent and respectable and religious person. Whatever it is, hear me, following Jesus, quote-unquote following Jesus, for the purpose of looking respectable and religious is still lighting your own torch and making your own way in life. And the eternal destiny for such a person is still the same. You will lie down in torment. Those torches you light to guide you will ultimately be the fire that consumes you in the end. And so I ask of you this morning, heed the servant's warning, hear his call, trust him. God's servant does not desire that any should perish and lie down in torment, but that you should reach repentance. And so his invitation stands this morning, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come all who wander in darkness, I will give you light. Come all who are foolish and disobedient and I will give you wisdom and righteousness. Come, God's wise and obedient servant has come to suffer and be vindicated, to bring you his free and eternal salvation. And it's free for the taking because it's offered at his expense. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the testimony of your servant here in Isaiah 54 through 11. Would you help us to hear the voice of your servant, to trust the voice of your servant, to obey the voice of your servant, and to fear you, the Lord God of heaven and earth. Help us not to walk by the light of our own torches, to, to not walk according to our own wisdom, our own guidance, to not do it our way, but to walk according to the, the way of your servant. Help us to answer his call to come and find rest for our weary souls. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.